Ladies and gentlemen, it's got to that point. Do you know how how fucked the world is? This is how fucked the world is. You can't even consume rainwater anymore because there are quote forever chemicals in there. Be not forever. In the words of public chemist Chuck D, bring the noise. Fifth End Podcast Network, I'm Charlie Taylor, and this is What's Good. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. Hope you've all had a good week in the circumstances. I saw that yesterday, I saw that last night. I was just like, come on, bro. C- come on. Can, can, can we have nothing now? <laughs> Can't even consume rainwater. Are you taking the piss? It's no longer safe to drink anywhere on earth. I, I I can't believe it. I, I just I saw that on uh, I think it's via Euronews Green, and I was I was just like wow, like fuck. <laughs> does that mean does that mean everything we drink is fucked then? Like, cause you know where where do we get where do we get water, right? No, I'm not a hydrologist, right? Of course, you know, I'm not not purporting to be anything. Uh, you know, not about purporting to be. Uh, you know the the uh, the one voice on 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 rainwater, but you know, fuck, bro. I remember the times back in the day when I was a you. I was just like, you know, you just you just hold your mouth out air and then just try and catch raindrops. You know, what I mean, can't even do it anymore. Forever chemicals in there. Damn, man, the world's fucked. Like it's just it's every every week is just something different. Every week, so if ain't a, if ain't a heat wave, it's the upcoming winter. If ain't the upcoming winter, it's Next year's heat waves. Uh, if ain't that, it's uh, fucking uh, 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 diseases. There's a new one in China apparently, and um, I, I'm just I'm just wondering. I want an update on the. I don't know if you remember like a few. Uh, this was like a couple of years ago. As a warning, right? Obvious, obviously, now it's here. Problem most likely, um, when you know, uh, you know, the 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 ice caps was the big thing. <laughs> no update on that, by the way. <laughs> There's just so much shit going on. Can't even think about the ice caps. Like they're, they're probably fucked. Is 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 um it's, it's the last cause at that point. Um, but you know, I I remember li- I remember hearing that around that time. Uh, you know, when the permafrost melts, they might re- it might release some just some fucking diseases that we haven't had in three hundred years or some shit. I'm just gonna be like, or, or thousands of years, and we're just gonna. <laughs> This is gonna be new. It's gonna be new level every single year. It's just gonna be something new, something fresh to kill us all. It's just crazy, absolutely crazy. But we're here. You're here, listening to episode one ninety of What's Good, and for that, I thank you so much. Love. Let's get into the show. Uh, we have a sports, uh, two societies, and a film with TV. Uh, four minutes before we begin. Email to this one equal that all that all that in the full show notes. Please go pee the articles for yourselves, give them a read for yourselves, and support the writers to make this show possible. And with that said, let the beat drop. Let's get into the show. Yeah, 
In a week where WNBA star Brittany Griner is sentenced to nine years in a Russian penal colony, where that is, uh, London Museum is returning 72 Benin treasures to Nigeria. Took your time. Uh, in in the in the many deaths um, that happened in <laughs> in the past few days, I can only clock two. I can only write down two because uh, the fourth one's hilarious. But um, yeah, you know, uh, Olivia Newton-John dies age 73. Uh, FBI raids Mar-a-Lago. Loving it, loving it, loving it, loving it like that. And uh, lastly, legendary Motown singwriter, uh, songwriter, singwriter, songwriter Lamont Dozier uh, dies aged 81. Um, so yeah, and also Issei Miyake, um, if, I, if I said his name correctly, he died as well. Um, yes, just um, it's just a lot. Um, didn't I couldn't even put on here that Serena Williams is going to retire. Um, I'm debating doing a long read of the uh, Vogue article that she wrote, um, but don't hold me to it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so let's begin with sports and uh, the Commonwealth Games uh, has come and gone. Just came uh, in the past uh, past few days, and um, you know, I, I personally, I I do I I do enjoy the Commonwealth Games. I am not ashamed to say that I do enjoy the Commonwealth Games. I enjoy the variety that there is um, in terms of the sports. It's a very interesting variety. It's just, it's, it's really weird. Like there's you know lawn bowls, uh, but then there's you know the athletics. Uh, uh, badminton, squash, right? You know, some of these aren't Olympic sports. It's just weird. I don't know how they pick these sports. You know, what I mean, it's just really weird. But we got them, and you know, I enjoy them. I I enjoy them for the most part. My, uh, you know, most of the sports, apart from maybe lawn bowls and the myriad of swimming. Um, the way too much swimming. Um, you do not need. Sorry, breaststroke should just um not exist. Um, no point. Like nobody swims like that. Um, and yeah, just take that, take that away, take away one of the, one of the, uh, distances, uh, there's just too many, there's 50, 100, 400, like, there's just too many, too many opportunities for medals, I feel, um, but anyway, past that, um, I wanted to, uh, talk about this, um, that I may or may not agree with, actually, um, you know, I'm, I'm a big fan of hers, um, I've, I've talked to her, I've, you know, referenced her well before, obviously, in Long Reads and in the, in the regular show as well, uh, as well. Miss Nadine White of The Independent, uh, race correspondent for The Independent, um, drops this little opinion piece called The Commonwealth Games Are Rooted in Slavery, It's Time to Axe Them. So let's see what she's saying. Let's see what the argument is, because um, I'm, I'm a bit 50-50 on it. Um, I'd recently, I only discovered, <laughs> literally... Literally, um, during the Commonwealth Games that it used to be called the Empire Games, I'm just like, whoa, 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 big rebrand there. When did that happen? <laughs> Fuck, big rebrand there. Fucking hell, a soft rebrand right there. Anyway, let's get into this and uh, see what Miss White is saying. The Commonwealth Games are little more than a PR exercise for Royal Britannia, a friend of mine said during a discussion about the major sporting event. Although the games are an opportunity for talented athletes uh, from various walks of life to showcase their abilities on a world stage and potentially change their individual lives, I'll admit that the concept of it sticks in my throat a bit. I love a good game as much as the next person, but the event is unpalatable because the Commonwealth as an institution is rooted in chattel slavery and the brutalization of African people, people such as my ancestors who were abducted from Nigeria, brought to Jamaica and forced to work. Moreover, the fact that so many contemporary socio-economic inequalities experienced by citizens of Commonwealth countries and their families is a direct consequence of the evils of the British Empire is not lost on me. 
how to celebrate when justice to those affected has been delayed and hence denied. After the abolition of slavery in 1833, financially prosperous Britain skipped off into the sunset without investing in the economics of its former sources of slaves in any meaningful way. And those left behind in, former, in the former colonies have grappled with poverty and destitution ever since. Britain paid nothing to, freed, uh, to the freed slaves in an attempt to redress the injustices they suffered. Headed by Queen Elizabeth II, the Commonwealth is a voluntary political association of 56 member states, the vast majority of which are former em British Empire colonies. The tangible benefits of the, uh, of the Commonwealth for former colonies are debatable, uh, though its supporters say developmental support and cooperation on international goals are among the benefits. The long and short of it is that the wealth of the wealth is not common in these countries. So what's the point of the organisation? How many people living on the breadline in Ghana and Barbados, for example, say they owe a debt of gratitude to the Commonwealth? Recent reports indicate that Britain controls more than one trillion eight hundred thirty billion pounds worth uh, dollar one trillion dollars eight hundred thirty billion pounds uh, worth of Africa's most valuable resources. Moreover, more wealth leaves leaves Africa every year than enters it by more than thirty one billion pounds, according to research that contradicts common perceptions of the continent flourishing through foreign aid. The Commonwealth purports to be about quote promoting justice and human rights unquote. Yet repertory justice for chattel slavery, a heinous crime uh, perpetrated by, against African people by a colonialist, has not been paid. On the other hand, British taxpayers finished paying off the debt that the British government incurred in order to compensate British slave owners in 1835. Because of the abolition of slavery and the inconvenience of not having free African labourers to make them rich. Entities that have the ability to pay reparations to former colonies, such as the British government and the royal family, have so far refused to engage uh, with calls for that. Yet Westminster, local government and other stakeholders have managed to fork out at least £778 million to cover the costs of the Commonwealth Games in Birmingham. It is clear that the money is there. The Games will open, uh, will open a wealth of new opportunities for people who live and work in the UK, specifically Birmingham, which is expected by ministers to contribute millions to the UK economy, lasting far beyond the conclusion of the event. As such, it is revealing that the Games have been dis disproportionately hosted in white-majority Commonwealth nations over the years, even though the Commonwealth comprises mainly black-majority countries. This essentially means that money and opportunities are being afforded to these locations over and over again. Despite the opening ceremonies nod to diversity, there's much more that needs to be done to balance out the playing field, so to speak. No one I know who is from a quote-unquote diverse racial background, black and Asian mostly, is following the games closely because there are more pressing things to be focusing on. Ooh. <laughs> Nadine doesn't know me apparently. Uh, such as the dis disproportionate impact of the cost of living crisis, which sees black people more likely to go hungry than white people, more likely to face fuel poverty, more likely to face higher living costs, and less likely to have substantial savings to fall back on. As the great as as the song says, quote, ain't nothing going on but the rent. And Her Majesty's government, which continues to implode as I type, stands accused of not doing enough to help people from marginalized groups who are in dire need. The Commonwealth Games should be scrapped and replaced with a sporting event that isn't bonded by racial trauma against a backdrop of Eurocentric denialism. The end of slavery was marked on Emancipation Day, August first, and the UK establishment's silence on the matter is a reflection of the anti-black racism that thrives in this country. The government, by contrast, rightly issued a statement in observation of the Roma Holocaust Memorial Day. 
When you inter- interrogate the wider context of the Commonwealth Games, it is difficult in all conscience to celebrate the event while the suffering of African people is the order of the day. Leading up to the disastrous Royal Caribbean tours and beyond, former colonies have been examining their relationship with the British monarchy. It's time we were all honest about the past. This is the only way we can productively move forward. Okay, so I have a few minutes. Um, so I, I kind of um, I've given my I've, uh, there's some space here for me to talk. So I feel like I, I feel like I you know should defend myself in some way. Um, well, firstly, she's not wrong in any in any sense. She is not wrong. Uh, it is there is some cognitive dissonance involved here. That's for sure. Um, it is majoritively, majority, majoritively, is, is that a word? You know, it is mainly hosted in white places. That's a fact. Um, previously, I think it was in the, uh, in the Gold Coast, quote unquote, which I assume, can only assume is basically Australia. <laughs> um, uh, let me try and look up the Commonwealth Games locations right quick as I talk. Um, but yeah. You know, I get it. I I really sincerely get it. Um, Often referred to as the Friendly Games, the games were called the British Empire Games from 1930 to 1950, the British Empire and Commonwealth Games from 50 to 56, and British Commonwealth Games from 70 to 74. Hilarious. Absolutely hilarious. Um, So, yeah. Um, It's just... It it is just... uh, It is obviously a lot of cognitive dissonance, like I said. Um, There are plenty of... I feel there are plenty of places that can, um, that can host a, uh, what's the word? That can host a Commonwealth Games, right? Yeah, oh, here we go. Look, here we go. Location. So, Canada, England, Australia, Canada, Wales, New Zealand, Canada, Wales, Australia, Jamaica, Scotland, New Zealand, Canada, uh, Australia, Scotland, New Zealand, Canada, Malaysia, England, Australia, India, Scotland, Australia, England. And Australia <laughs> again in the in the state of Victoria instead, um, which is hilarious. And uh, the top uh, and the top winners always either England or Australia. So um, you know, I mean, and uh, apparently Canada, Montreal, and Cardiff uh, 42 and 46 were obviously uh, cancelled for obvious reasons. Um, so yeah, I get it. I I, I sincerely get it. Um, wholesale, I get it. Um, it's never been hosted in Africa in general. Um, it's only been hosted once in the in the Caribbean islands, which is Jamaica. That's, that doesn't fly. That, that just does not fly at all. Um, that in itself is just wrong. When it comes to the money, that's wrong. The, you can't, it can't just be bandied about to Australia, uh, the UK and Canada, which is pretty much all it is. Like UK, UK obviously sovereignties, uh, England, you know, Wales, uh, not even Northern Ireland has been has had has had one, which is interesting. Um, Canada and, and um, Scotland as well. You know, it makes sense. I get it. I really do sincerely get it. Um, apart from Malaysia, maybe, which is probably the outlier here, and India, I guess. All right, and Jamaica, like I said, I've mentioned, but it's just not. It's just not the steez. When it comes to that, it's not the steez, and I get it. Um, I simply believe that. Um, while I enjoy the Commonwealth Games, there is just the it, you can't really escape it. You know, it's the Commonwealth for a reason, and there are plenty of countries. I feel you know what I'm. I'm gonna say something radical right now. Okay, I'm just. I'm just. I'm just. I'm, did you just thought this? I'm just gonna shout this out as a solution to anything, right? Because I feel like and while Nadine, while Miss White, my Miss White is right, 
get the rhymes out of the way. Um, while she's right in every single way um, in what she mentions and all the um, uh, proclamations she makes, um, and while I agree with the majority of them, I was trying to th- I was trying to think of a solution, and the only solution I can imagine is that um, uh, for for the, for countries that are not in the UK, Canada, or Australia, I feel like all the other countries should honestly boycott the Commonwealth Games um, next time uh, and get those reparations. That that's because because it's happening. It's happening, guys. Caribbean countries are ditching the state. Uh, Queen Elizabeth, the head of state, is happening country by country. It's a it's a growing movement, okay. And reparations is next on the bill for them. I think it was uh, maybe Barbados that talked that talked about it uh, talked about it last year. Uh, Jamaica's definitely talked about it in recent years. It's coming. It's coming. I feel um, just the groundswell of people um, in certain countries under the quote-unquote Commonwealth, asking for reparations, and rightly so. I am here for it all, every day of the week. Um, I, while I would love to, love to see the Commonwealth Games go on as it is, um, maybe in a different name, or just removing the... Uh, yeah, removing the... I don't know, just the, 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 the empire, nation, empire notion of it. Um, I didn't watch the opening ceremony, but I know, like, you know, heads of state... Like Queen Elizabeth and I think Charles did the reason one opening up. It, I don't like that. I don't like the royal end end of it. It 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 brings it it, it brings it inside. And it's just like okay, all right, this is this is the Empire Games again. All right, cool. It's obvious, right? But I feel like as a solution, um, I feel like countries that are not Canada, the UK, countries inside the UK, British Isles, and um, and Australia, and maybe New Zealand as well, um. I feel like they should all boycott the Commonwealth Games and, you know, have a list of demands. Like, either, you know, either we do, either we, you know, we get what we want on this front. And doesn't even have to be reparations, uh, uh, you know, by the way. I mean, it should be. Um, they have the right to, uh, they have the right to demand it. Um, but also, you know, other stuff. Use sport, man. Use it. Or do what, you know, the likes of uh, John Carlos and um, Tommy Smith did. Go there, go there, win, and then protest. Do that because it's not the I- because the Commonwealth is not controlled by the IOC, if I remember correctly. If I'm if I'm correct, let me look it up again because I don't know why I delete the bloody thing. Um, I don't think it's controlled by the uh, headed up by the IOC, so um, they don't allow protesting. But I'm sure. Uh, here we go. Uh, Commonwealth Games. I'm not seeing. Uh, yeah, I'm not. I'm not seeing the IOC anywhere. So. Yeah, overseen by the Commonwealth Games Federation. If they don't have, if they don't have um, locking in of just like no protesting, which I fucking hope they don't, and that's extremely, um, you know, bull- we, we talked about this with the IOC as well. It's bullshit that they, they did. Um, fucking protest, bro. Go there and protest. I'm here for it. Do it. I'm all here for that. Um, I'm trying to have my cake and eat it too. I know this. I'm, I'm being, I'm being a bit stubborn here. Um, I won't cry if it never if it if the Commonwealth Games never come up again. I'm you know I'm I'm kind of just there for the athletics most of the time. I I will watch some rugby sevens. I will watch some badminton. I will watch some squash maybe. Uh, a little bit of swimming, a little bit of diving. I watch the gymnastics with my mum. Right, that's all cool. I'm down for that. Right, I'm, I'm but you know I'm mainly here for the athletics. I'm just gonna be real with you. And even in this year, which is a special year due to COVID and uh, just backlog, 
you know, I've had the World World Athletics Championships, having the European Championships literally today, um, as I record, as this episode drops, European Athletics uh, European Championships are going on. So I'm good. I don't need, I don't quite unquote need the Commonwealth Games, um, uh, personally. I'm sure there's plenty of people, and that's the thing, I'm sure there's plenty of athletes that I never heard of, and I'm watching, doing, you know, I'm watching doing it, and I'm just like, damn, I know this person now, and they're on the map in some way. Um, you know, that's respectable, I he- I'm here for that, but I can't, uh, you know, in my right mind, say the Commonwealth Games is fine, it's just not, it's just really not, it's not, it's not on at all, it just, it, like, you know, Miss White says, it, you know, just harkens back to slavery, it's basically just that, it's like, hey guys, remember when we used to slave- enslave you, <laughs> come, come challenge us to some athletics and see what happens, and, you know, it could big up Jamaica for actually sticking it, sticking it to them, but, you know, it's apart from that, it's mainly just Australia and England winning. Um, it's what it is. So, boycott the fuck. Either boycott or do some just mass protest. Really go for it. Honestly, really plan ahead. Really go for it. I'm here for that. Um, same with the World Cup. All of that. Just do that. Um, you have your decisions to make. Um, and some some are right. Some are. I mean, they're both right in their own way. But you never know which one's more beneficial than the other until you do it. Um, I remember this. I remember watching. I'll finish here. I remember watching a documentary about um, the you know Black Power, um, the black the Black Fist um, uh, games in Mexico, and I think it was actually was it a documentary or yeah I think it was a documentary actually yeah about them, and um, I think they were not. Uh, I think they were not going to do it. Um, yeah, I think they were going to boycott the games, uh, uh, U.S. as a whole. I think if I remember correctly. Um, not US as a whole, but black black Americans, and uh, you know they did it, and I feel like the world is all the better for it that Carlos and Smith won and did the gesture. You know, what if they didn't? We wouldn't have that iconic moment. We would have the we would have the local uh, the national news archive saying, oh, you know, black Americans uh, athletes uh, boycotted the Olympics, but you know that'll be it. Nothing would have happened substantially by then. Um, but because they did that, um, the world is much different and in my mind, much better for it. So that's, that's my, that's my having, I'm trying to have my cake and eat it too. I'm just going to be real with you. Um, I can get past the cognitive dissonance. Um, but I understand if it never happened, if the Commonwealth Games were binned, I would be fine with that. Not against it. Um, I would like to have it, but I'm fine with binning it. Can't complain. I, I've got plenty other, uh, plenty other meals to eat as it pertains to sports. hop into our first of uh, two uh, society segments and um, this is about the 70s literally called were the 70s really that great um, it's by uh, Miss uh, Juliette Jacques um, a writer filmmaker and academic based in London uh, most recent book Frontlines Trans Journalism 2007 to 2021 is available now so if you want to go spin go spin um, but yeah it's um yeah it's just it's just about the 70s and if and I find it interesting because the 70s is a really a really interesting time, a really interesting time, especially in Britain, uh, which this is mainly based. Um, it's a via Navarra Media, by the way. And um, yeah, I just wanted to give it a spin because I feel like it's one of those general conversations. That I feel you know, there's a lot of things right now, especially in Britain, that hark back to 
you know, the 70s, the 80s. There's a lot of things just replaying themselves. I literally just listened to a Today in Focus um, from a while, from a couple of days ago uh, where conservatives are just, you know, dick riding Margaret Thatcher and basically deifying her. And it's really weird and really cringe. Um, and yeah, it's just it's just weird how it's just weird how things just come back around. It's as if the quote, if you don't learn history, it comes, it, it, you, you are doomed to repeat it. Hmm, weird, weird. If only we had good education system um, so we could um, avoid that. So avoid uh, repeating history. Anyway, let's get into this article. Whenever there's a strike, especially during that four-year period when the Labour Party was led by people who actually supported Labour, right-wing figures will rush to the airwaves to insist nobody wants a return to the 70s. Uh, to them, the 1970s were a nightmare. Organised labour wielded too much power. Uppity minorities were demanding too many rights. Primetime television was full of dreary dramas about the working classes or documentaries about racism. The Thames full of punk bands yelling about republicanism. All had to be crushed. And following the neoliberal revolution that took place after Margaret Thatcher's election in 1979, they were. Now we live in a country with the most restrictive trade union legislation in Western Europe, a soon-to-be-privatised alternative broadcaster, Channel 4, that makes documentaries attacking people on benefits, and a pop culture dominated by privately educated people who wouldn't know how to bring social critique into their work even if they wanted to. For the left, the Tory nightmare might sound like a reasonable starting point for a better society, but we beware nostalgia. Yes, people were pushing for better wages, working conditions, gender and racial equality. But many facets of Thatcherism, such as high unemployment, council house sales and rampant de-industrialisation, de-industrialisation, long word, uh, were already in place. Society was more violent, car accidents killed far more people and industrial accidents, fires and transport disasters were far more frequent. Chartoppers were just as anodyne and apolitical as they are now. That is actually, I didn't even think of that, how apolitical music is right now in Britain. It's actually kind of crazy. Look at the charts, man. It's actually depressing how <laughs> how just uh, just vibes uh, music is right now. It's a bit mad. Anyway, didn't think didn't think about that. Shout, that's a good shout. Uh, where was I at? Uh, apolitical Zion now. And television was full of racist sitcoms and bad light entertainment programs hosted by serial abusers. Just as there is left-wing nostalgia for high unionization race and re- reg- regicidal? Regicidal punk bands, that's the word. Uh, so too, there is their right-wing nostalgia for this side of the 70s, an era when it was acceptable to use homophobic slurs on TV before news presenters with regional accents. Before uh, <laughs> uh, news teams... Oh yeah, okay. Before hashtag me to political correctness, corporate social responsibility, and health and safety turned men soft. Uh, while the men... Uh, what? While the men? While the left associates the end of the 70s with economic revolution... The right sees it as having heralded a cultural revolution. In both cases, the changes were cemented by new labour. Any revolution or counter-revolution will weaponise the memory of the period immediately preceding it to emphasise its legitimacy. For a parallel of the Tories' invocation of the uh, British 70s, see the reaction against the Soviet period and attendant removal of monuments and banning of socialist or communist parties in Poland or Ukraine, as their uh, marquee reforms brought spiralling inequality and a research environment. Over time, the tactic, this tactic becomes less effective. You would have, you would have to be of retirement age now to, uh, to have been an adult during the three-day week, the bloody Sunday massacre, or the UK's entry into the European economic community. 
and these were people were the people who overwhelmingly voted conservative at the last election. The older middle aged who Labour lost between 2017 and 2019 might be nostalgic for their childhoods. Anyone under 45 will have no recollection of the 1970s at all. And in a period of unaffordable rents and mortgages, insecure employment, and an aggressively unintelligent media may think it sounds better. Indeed, a desire to reverse Thatcherism by renationalizing key industries, building more council housing, and increasing access to the arts lay behind Labour's manifestos of 2017 and 19. This only became possible after the membership voted for a leader who had criticised a neoliberal turn ever since the installation of, in, in 1973, excuse the plane, of Augusto Pinochet as Chilean president after the CIA-backed overthrow of dem- democratically elected leader Salvador Allende. I think that's how you say it. Say Allende. Uh, in Chile, the laboratory of neoliberalism, uh, people have expressed their desire to go back to the early, uh, early 1970s. Left- leftist Gabriel Boric uh, was recently elected on the promise of a new constitution to replace the existing one, written after the Pinochet coup. In the UK, in the wake of Corbyn's defeat and the recapture of Labour by a Thatcherite wing which forbids solidarity with striking workers, neoliberalism has taken an authoritarian turn, as it can no longer manufacture consent since the 2008 crash and the punitive austerity that followed. Hence, the hysterics about the rise of militant unions and new anti-protest laws, the spite-fueled media ramping up its attacks on young people and minorities, especially those who might be better off than you, and if and ever more barbaric immigration and border policies, which, by the way, um, side note, um, is not even working. There's more people uh, from non-EU countries coming into the UK uh, after the exit vote, which is hilarious. That just that just makes me laugh. Um, so you know, bin pretty Patel, please. That'd be great anyway. Any movement trying to undo the damage done to public services, the British media, trade unions and workers' rights has a huge job on its hands. In terms of resistance from the two main parties, the state and corporate interests, all of which worked in concert to smash the Labour left. It's notable, though, that the spectre of the 70s still terrifies conservatives, even those who didn't live through them. Uh, Opinion polling showed that Labour's 2019 plans to roll back the privatisations of the 80s and 90s were popular. And it was the more 21st century policies, free broadband, the Green New Deal, and demands such as John McDonald's uh, for socialism with an iPad that attracted, attracted social media ridicule. This week, Keir Starmer, head of a faction stuck firmly in the 90s, announced that the 2019 manifesto would be junked. Despite some hesitancy, previous form suggests he will soon ditch promised nationalisation pledges altogether. But Labour was led by the right in the 70s, albeit in a political order still shaped by the post-war reforms of the Attlee administration. What the 70s can teach uh, teach us is the value of bringing pressure to bear on either party. Whether it, was, whether it was the miners effectively bringing down Edward Heath's conservative government in 1974, excuse me, uh, or transport and general workers' unions, uh, workers' union, General Secretary Jack Jones being seen as the most powerful person in the UK in 1977. Ahead of Labour's uh, Labour Prime Minister James Callaghan, that's hilarious. The recent wave of RMT activity, UCU strikes, and proposed ballots elsewhere suggests they turn back towards institutions that will give workers pa- give yeah workers power, and uh, whose leaders will be far bolder than the Labour Party in confronting the collapse of the neoliberal consensus. Equally important is resisting the immunisation of the British media from public accountability by building the left's cultural power. 
When the Tories say nobody wants to go back to the 70s, they are also trying to dissuade people from revisiting a time when programmes about working class people drew audiences of millions. The BBC's Play for Today drama uh, drama series puts films about uh, put films about the Civil War in Northern Ireland, factional disputes within the Labour Party, the experiences of the Windrush generation, or of trans women in prime time slots. Uh, ITV ran play. I didn't even know that. You know, I'd never heard of that. Play for today. I'm gonna look that up. ITV ran playwright Trevor Griffith's uh, eleven part series Bill Brand about the struggles of a left wing Labour MP on at 9pm so that working people could see it, helping it to reach an audience of 11 million. The show was discontinued in 84, having long been criticised by right-wing commentators. There was talk of reviving in 06, ex-journalist and comedian Michael Gove. Ex-comedian? Are you taking the piss? You're boying me right now. Where was he, the, where was he a comedian? Oh, wow, that's, that's depressing. Later to be Education Secretary, divided the dramas as, quote, ex- exercises in view of patronisation. The proposal came to nothing. Great. Where the fuck was he a comedian? Oh, cringe. Oh, that's so cringe. All right. Uh, watching it uh, back, Play for Today seems precisely the opposite. Treating its viewers as intelligent, their lives worthy of dramati- dramatisation. They, cer- they certainly strike a different note to The Crown or Downton Abbey. Oh, gosh. Perfect. Perfect fucking comparison. Thank you. This is why I hate shit like that. I don't want to see that shit. I don't care about affluent people, okay? I do not give a fuck about The Crown. I do not give a fuck about Downton Abbey. Stop making these fucking shows. I hate these shows with a fucking passion. Anyway, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to see if this is on YouTube or something. I'm going I'm to try and peep an episode of this. I, I hope it's not like an hour long. But yeah, I'm going to give them some. I'll see what's up. Uh, doubtless, a modern day, because, I mean, trans women in prime time in the 70s? Trans women in the 70s? That's crazy to think about. I I thought that shit didn't exist. Like, TV about trans people? Nah, nah, nah. I, thought, I genuinely thought that didn't exist. That's crazy. Uh, doubtless, a modern day equivalent of any of these shows would not achieve anything like the same massive audience in the streaming age. Uh, but the prominence and popularity in the 70s of ideas driven... Uh, a formerly inventive culture in the mainstream was not simply the consequence of there being nothing better to watch on the telly. Instead, it was the result of decades of work by the cultural democracy movement, universities, trade unions, political parties and elsewhere. This provides another useful lesson, uh, more useful at least, than those offered by the I Love the 70s type shows that focus on space hoppers and super noodles. Hey, 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 hey. What, are you, what are you saying about super noodles? Don't do super noodles. Having smashed the workers' movement in the 80s, leading to a new Labour Prime Minister who boasted that he would, quote, leave British law the most restrictive on trade unions in the Western world, and a Tory government that tore public service broadcasting to shreds throughout the 2010s, the right has set its sights on reversing the social gains that came out in the 70s. At present, there is more obvious in the, uh, this is more obvious in the US than here, a reversal of Roe v. Wade leading to many states to reinstate bans on abortion and plan uh, attacks on equal marriage and trans healthcare. In the UK, refugees and migrants, Muslims and trans people are most under fire, as the right looks to divide minority groups to cement its rule. The civil rights movements of the 70s staged fierce debates about how, uh, intersectional to, how intersectional to be and sometimes kept their distance from organised labour or left-wing parties. One way we can build on that legacy is to stress the importance of cooperation, with anti-racist, LGBTQ+, and f- feminist groups linking up with trade unions and other centres of workers' power. That way, we can build the institutions we didn't have 
in the Corbyn period, giving us a better chance of success if we have another opportunity to win power and in the meantime put pressure on the Conservatives. It's a massive task, but we shouldn't forget that 10 million people voted for the 2019 manifesto and the difficulty that our media has had in discrediting McLynch and the RMT should be a source of hope that, in the end, we might just be able uh, to build on some of the promises of the 70s. Wow. Who knew the 70s was so OP? <laughs> I'm half joking, but... Gee, and this is... I, I, I've... I've I've seen the seventies regularly from you know recent years from a black perspective, you know, with the many documentaries of black power and and the black power movement of that of that era. I watched a documentary on Michael X recently. Um, obviously the Steve McQueen stuff uh, recently, Uprising, Small Axe series, love all of that. It's very interesting of just how um, organized they were, and. Um, I actually listened to a podcast recently about neoliberalism, more more from a postmodern lens and what postmodernism is and how it's kind of interlinked with neoliberalism. But it's clear that neoliberalism is just is just fucking kneecapped everything really. Like social housing, all of that stuff, like that was a project that was just half baked. So they built the houses, they, you know, they got all that all done, they got the people in, right, and everyone was, everyone was cool at one point, right? But then Thatcher came in and just took a bulldozer of everything and just, you know, just took a, yeah, just took a bullet to everything, just boom, not done, no more. Didn't even ease out of it, just, just machine gun, grenade, whatever imagery, imagery, blow up imagery you want to, you want to use. She basically just did that. And now people are dying for it. Now people are dying because of it, because there's no um, proper uh, accounting for, you know, buildings that were built fucking years, decades ago. These council houses are rotting, should have been, you know, redone or, you know, built upon, you know, it was, it was, that was the start of it. They, they left them half baked and now people are just going to, and now people are basically living death traps now. Um, you know, obviously harking back to Grenfell and, you know, many other, and we have like a fight, we have like a Grenfell, a near Grenfell nearly every year now. No, not even that, every few, every couple of, every few months I see another tower block just on fire and I'm just like, oh my days, another one. Please, please, please just, just, just not be Grenfell again, you know? You just, you just clasp your hands and just hope. And that's just one side of everything, man. That's just uh, well, two sides of everything. Like the the organization and and the kneecap systems that were, you know, just getting started, and now it's just getting to a point where I I, I don't know, man. I don't know. October is going to be a very interesting month. Um, I don't know how people are going to go with energy bills. Um, there's a don't pay movement on, so I'm, I'm interested to see how that goes. But honestly, it's it's up to the government. Are they going to let people die because of all this? You know, <laughs> they might. <laughs> I, 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 I say I don't say that lightly. They legit might. Let's jump into something light. Um, this is all about Netflix's expensive ass movies. Obviously, the most recent one, The Green Man, um, was about, I think, like 200 million budget. And uh, who knows if they considered it a success or not. Uh, my mum saw it, she was like, it's okay, it's fine, it's not you know, anything to write home about. 
Um, but yeah, I just uh, Netflix is crumbling. I think we've seen this uh, by by a subscriber count. They're clearly, excuse me, they're clearly bleeding. And um, you know whether that's a good thing or not, who knows? Whatever, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but I thought I saw this article a couple of weeks ago, um, July twenty eighth actually. So I'll say this. I'll say this for. Um, I've said this for a couple of weeks. Um, this is by Sam Adams, uh, not the not the drink. Um, it's called the Netflix Aesthetic, and it's uh, via Slate. And uh, basically, just I, I think he, I think the prompt is that he just watched all the expensive ass uh, Netflix movies from like Bright to Grey Man, Irishman, and stuff like that. And just um, where, where's it going for Netflix? You know what I mean? So let's jump right. Last month. The Hollywood Reporter informed readers that after a year which saw Netflix's subscription dip uh, and its stock price plummet, the company was no longer in the business of financing, quote, expensive vanity projects, unquote, like mine score says is the Irishman. In its place would be movies like The Green Man, a $200 million thriller <laughs> about CIA assassins tying Ryan Gosling and Chris Evans are directed by Marvel stalwarts Joe and Anthony Russo. They debuted on the service last week. The Irishman, $160 million, three-and-a-half-hour rumination on the dying regrets of a mob hitman that Martin Scorsese had been trying to make for over a decade, was a labour of love. The Grey Man is just a labour. In a recent interview, Joe Russo described the movie as business-focused content. Oh, oh that is the, that is the, the most gut-wrenching fucking three-word cluster I've ever heard in my life. How unartistic is that term? Business-focused content. I hate that fucking word, content. Oh, I want to heave. That's horrible. <sighs> anyway. And watching the movie is just as transporting an experience uh, as, that make, as that makes it sound. With a cast that includes Anna de Armas, Billy Bob Thornton, Alfred Woodward, and Reggae Jean Page. I think that's how you say Reggae Jean Page. Uh, there is always an interesting person on screen, or at least Chris Evans' moustache. And the Russos shift the action to a different country every few minutes Thailand, Turkey, Austria, Turkey, Azerbaijan, and Czech Republic, among other spots, so that you don't get bored. Even if they do have a gift for making far flung locales feel like the inside of a warehouse in Atlanta. But perhaps because of a substantial chunk of the Grey Man's massive budget went to just paying the stars, Gosling and Evans are reported to receive twenty million apiece. The movie can look surprisingly tatty at times, nobly during a CGI-heavy uh, fight aboard a cargo plane. That's so blurry and poorly staged; it's actively painful to look at. And even when it doesn't look cheap, it sounds cheap. The Russo's way with cheeky, self-aware dialogue has stood them uh, stood them in good stead. From their days making network sitcoms through their tenure in the Marvel MCU, I'm just saying MCU, but their zippy barbs in the Grey Man feel like placeholders for better lives to come. The subtitles might as well read Quip to be added later. In the opening scene, Thornton's CIA recruiter tells Gosling's imprisoned convict he's going to help him, quote, become a, a value add instead of a value lost, unquote. Later, as Evans dispatches an army of mer mercenaries to take out Gosling's rogue agent, he orders them to, quote, hit this meatball like a freight train, unquote. Great. The Grey Man is far from the worst movie I've ever seen, but it might be one of the least. What? <laughs> the least movies? What does that mean? Uh, it's the end stage result of, a, of converting art into, quote, unquote, content. The equivalent of eating Soylent instead of a home-cooked meal. It will, prov it will provide a comforting uh, background hum as you scroll through your phone. 
give you some attractive people and dramatic explosions to occasionally glance up at, but also dull your senses, teach you to accept fullness in places in place of satisfaction, and ultimately rob you of a tiny portion of your life. You don't consume it, it consumes you. The Grey Man has been touted as the most expensive movie Netflix have ever made. Uh, although, like all numbers issuing from uh, Netflix, that claim has to be treated with scepticism. This is, after all, the company that for years counted watching two minutes of a movie as a view. Red Notice has also, also had a reported budget of 200 mil, and the movie's director claimed the actual cost might have been closer to 300 mil. Irishman uh, may have run as high as 225 mil. It's not surprising that, especially with state uh, stockholders, to convince uh, that the company is shifting course away from taking chances on wide variety of projects to placing a few big safe bets. Netflix is emphasizing the Grey Man's cost, a marketing tactic that goes back to the earliest days of silent movie spectacle. But at least when Cleopatra or the Ten Commandments broke the bank, you got eye-popping splendor and majestic pageantry. With the Russos, you just get glop. I love that word, glop. Uh, for years, Netflix's pitch to filmmakers was that it was the place that would make movies no one else would and give them the freedom they never had. The Irishman felt apart a paramount over budgetary concerns and might have tumbled back into development hell had Netflix not snatched it from the moor. Jane Campion, uh, arguably one of the greatest living directors, hadn't made a movie in 12 years before Netflix financed The Power of the Dog in 2021. But the auteurist approach hasn't paid dividends Netflix hoped for, namely best securing the best picture win they spent years and millions chasing, so they pivoted from prestige to populism. Netflix is still pay- laying out uh, f- uh, four awards track movies. They'll have four premieres at the Venice Film Festival in September, including the edgy Marilyn Monroe biopic Blonde uh, and the adaptation of Don DeLillo's White Noise. But the movies they're spending the most on the ones that define what a Netflix movie is, kept getting, keep getting worse. 2017's Bright was pure movie star folly, a misguided mixture of buddy cop thriller and fantasy story that ended up costing over 100 mil, just so Netflix can announce they'd work with Will Smith. If there's any upside to uh, Smith's Oscars contratemps, yeah, contratemps, it's, uh, it's that it seems to have permanently killed the long-simmering plans for a Bright 2. Yeah, big up that, big up that. Uh, but the following years, Outlaw King, a muck-strown take on medi- medieval history that opens with a nine-minute tracking shot and ended up costing $120 million. Cemented them as, a, as the place where dreams came true, even if that dream was just scrounging up a few million to fulfil the decades-long quest of completing Orson Welles' final film. Next up was The Irishman, the Ulmer passion project for perhaps the most revered director of life, and even when Netflix gave Transformers author Michael Bay 150 mil to make the slick, brainless caper movie Six Underground, you could feel a sense of freedom verging on mania at play. For better or worse, it was clear that there was no one looking over Bay's shoulder. Oh yeah, well, nobody looks over Bay's shoulder, that's clear, when he does his films. Just explosions, explosions, explosions. In retrospect though, the defining Netflix movie of 2019 isn't Scorsese's or Bay's, uh, but J.C. Chandler's Triple Frontier. Which, uh, which stars Ben Affleck... I've never even heard of this film. Like, that's how hilarious this is. Which stars Ben Affleck and Oscar Isaac as American veterans who hatch a plan to rip off a South American drug lord. It's a solid, modestly intelligent action movie with enough recognisable faces to fill out a variety of thumbnails and a plot calculated to appeal to fans of the Narcos franchise. Instead of climaxing with a successful heist, uh, movie, the movie puts it smack in the middle and its second half is devoted to a new problem. Now that these soldiers have a little, literal ton of cash, how are they going to get it home? The farther they get, the more of a burden the money becomes to the extent that some, uh, that some of them lose everything they have trying to get on, hold onto it. 
Netflix made several hundred million plus movies after that. Some good, some bad. But they've come at a price point with renewed vigour in the last year. With The Grey Man, uh, Red Notice, The Adam Project and Spiderhead. The fuck is that? All released since November. Uh, These are big movies. All right. Headlined headlined by stars like Dwayne Johnson and Chris Hemsworth from the directors of box office hits like Skyscraper and Top Gun Maverick. But there's nothing distinctive about them. No sense uh, that all uh, that... No sense that all that that all that money, goddamn, that's weird how I saying it, is being spent on anything other than making the client happy. The Ringers' Adam Neyman uh, referred to the Russo brothers as project managers, <laughs> pretty much, uh, and that's who Netflix is handing uh, handing their largest bag of cash to nowadays. Not visionaries or innovators, but people who can do as they are told, or better yet, don't need to be told in the first place. They're giving creative freedom to people with no creative instincts. Ooh, ouch. The Grey Man obligingly leapt top of the Netflix's rankings the moment it was released, and a four-dane sequel reuniting Gosling and the Russos was announced on Tuesday, with an unspecified spin-off movie in the works. Two Red Notice sequels are also on the way, really? Possibly to be shot back-to-back. Oh, God. It's a cavalcade of content, a field day for people who want movies that go through them like a glass of tap- warm tap water. Who drinks warm tap Oh gosh, no, I'm not. I'm not. No, there's no way. I'm. There's nothing. There's nothing in the world that. Oh god, I know. I know what you, I know what he's saying, but I'm, just, I'm not drinking warm tap water. That's why I don't watch it because like warm tap water. There you go. It works. The metaphor works. In an interview promoting the Grey Man, Joe Russo who spent the press tour for Avengers Endgame, touting the experience of collective movie watching, dismissed the notion of, <laughs> of movie theaters as a sacred space as quote unquote bullshit. And having seen The Grey Man as Netflix exist, uh, at Netflix's assistance in a movie theater, I can confirm there was nothing sacred about the experience. If anything, the movie looks better on a laptop. <laughs> oh, ruthless. Uh, he's right that the medium isn't a problem. There are innovative, thought-provoking, heart-stopping movies releasing to streaming every week, some of them even on Netflix. But you'll have to go digging for them because the algorithm is too invested in getting you to watch The Grey Man instead. The future may not be bright, but at least it's predictable, and that's kind of it, right? That's a key. That's a key point I want to I want to harp on right quick, um, and, I'll, and I'll be I'll be, this will be my only thought towards it because the rest of it is preaching to be honest. Like <laughs> watching on laptop is hilarious. Um, this is basically similar to um, it's getting to a point where film streaming is like music streaming now. You have to dig for the good shit, like for for the for the good shit that you enjoy. I would say right. They're gonna throw you Grey Man in the same way Spotify is gonna throw you Drake. You, but you, if you, I guarantee you, there is. I hate when people say this. Nothing to watch. There is always something to watch. You just have to have to look for it for a bit, and that's all it is. Just a little bit of dedication on your part. If you really want to find something to watch, if you really want to find something to love, if you really want to find a film to love, a TV show to love, you just have to. Have, you just have to find it. You just have to dig a little bit. And is that all? Is that so hard to ask for? You know, like, do, do, you, re- do you really just want to be force fed the Grey Man and three Red Notice movies? Is that what you want? No? Good. Just look for it a bit. Just look for you. Just, just, you know what you like? Go find it. Just go find it. Same thing with music. Go find your niche. Go find it. Because there are so many artists and so many filmmakers that are doing good shit. But they're not getting their shit watched. 
They're not getting their shit gassed by Netflix because they're busy gassing up the fucking grey man. Partly, mostly, because their whole fucking entire ecosystem is bleeding out. And that's all it is. That's all it is. So, you just have to have a little bit of dedication for yourself. Love yourself in this fashion, okay? Love yourself in every way, but love yourself in this fashion. You know what you want. You know what you like. Don't settle for the fucking grey man and red notice one, two, and three. Don't settle for that. Go and find what you love. And I guarantee you, once you find that, that TV show, that film, you, and the same with music, that album, that song, you will feel so... You, you damn, bro, the gratefulness you will have is exponential. Trust me on that. So we're going to finish up on a second society topic. Um, it could be life as well, but I guess um, I don't know. Society. Um, this is uh, by Adam Grant via The Guardian, uh, who's an organisational psychologist at Wh- the Wharton School of University of, of the University of, Pen- of Pennsylvania, um, author of Think Again: The Power of Knowing What You Don't Know, and host of the TED podcast Work Life. Um, so this is called. <laughs> I don't know why I should have done this last or first, but it's called You Can't Say That: How to Argue Better. Um, put simply, so yeah, let's learn how to argue because I feel like with the with the internet, I feel like people just don't know how to argue and don't. Uh, most people just debate perverts where they love to argue, but not in the healthy way, in the bad faith way of like trying to catch you out. Yeah, I got you in the marketplace. No ideas. Yeah, it's like oh goddamn. Like, can we just have a conversation? You know what I mean? It's, I can, it's so hard to find those. It's so hard to find those these days, especially on online circles. It's crazy. Um, but yeah, I feel like this is worthy. Um, so yeah, let's just jump right in those. A few days ago, a few years ago, sorry, I had an argument with a close friend who had decided not to give his children any vaccinations. <coughs> uh, hiccups now, great. I've got hiccups. It'll be fun. Fun to go through. Um, to preserve our relationship, I vowed never to talk about vaccines with him again. When COVID-19 arrived, I broke that vow. For the next nine months, we due to an email thread so that uh, so long that we ran out of new colours for our replies. One day he made a comment uh, that uh, caught me off guard. We'd argue more in the past year than we've spoken in the preceding decade. I don't know about you, he wrote, but I love it. He wasn't alone. I found myself looking forward to our cognitive cage fights. Instead of pushing us apart, arguing brought us closer together. And rather than closing our minds, we both opened up. We admitted we were wrong on some points and discovered harmony on others. <coughs> Every time I try and clear my throat, I hiccup. It's really annoying. In our, polar- in our polarized world, a productive disagreement is a rare occurrence. Oh, God. Tell me the truth. <laughs> Excuse me. Uh, research shows that the average person. I re- I've. It's the first time I've had hiccups in it in a while. I don't remember the last time I've had hiccups. This is crazy. Let me just take a drink real quick. Okay, I literally just had to like, I don't know, just not record for like twenty minutes. <laughs> Alright, let's get back into this freaking door. So I think I think it's gone. I think it's gone. God, those are those are ruthless hiccups, man. I really haven't had. I don't think I've had hiccups in years. Like literally, it's been that long. I don't remember the last time I had hiccups. Anyway, research shows that the average person would rather talk to a stranger who shares their political views than a friend who doesn't. As a travesty, as an organizational psychologist and recovering conflict avoider, 
I've spent years studying how to build our argument literacy. Argument, well, is a skill set, but it's heavily influenced by your mindset. A good debate isn't about one person declaring victory, it's about both people making a discovery. And I'm going to say the subtitles, I usually don't, but um, are you a preacher, prosecutor, or politician? Definitely not a politician. In in disagreements, do any of us think like preachers, prosecutors, and politicians? In preacher mode, you're trying to... proselytize proselytize your views in prosecutor mode you're attacking someone else's and in politician mode you don't even listen to people unless they already share your views when i hear someone talk like a preacher or politician i often snapped into prosecutor mode there are a few things that offend me more than ignorance masquerading as knowledge thank you thank you god damn i hate it I've, if I think you're wrong, I feel it's my professional responsibility as a social scientist and my moral responsibility as a human being to correct you. I've been called a logic bully. It took me too long to realise that hammering people with facts really wins, the ar- really wins the argument and sometimes loses the relationship. Whether you're preaching, prosecuting or politicking, you've already conclu- concluded that you're right and they are wrong. You flip a switch that shuts down your capacity for critical thinking. Learn to recognise your own lazy thinking. In a pair of clever experiments run by an international team of cognitive scientists, people had to generate logical arguments on a range of issues, then evaluate other people's answers to the same questions. What the participants didn't know uh, was that one of their own arguments had been mixed into the set uh, they were being asked to evaluate. When they thought that argument, uh, when they thought that argument was made by someone else, 50%, 57% of people rejected it. Our reasoning is selectively lazy. We hold our own opinions to lower standards than other people's. That's a good point. When someone doesn't buy the case you're making, it's worth remembering that you might not either if you weren't the one selling it. So here's the thing. This Okay, drop my phone. <laughs> so here's the thing. This is going this is this is going fucking well. Uh, this episode great. Um I don't, I already delete shit. I don't know why. I, should, I probably should, but here we are. Um so the reason why I don't fuck with people that talk like okay, recent example. So Liz Truss is talking about um gay conversion therapy, right? And how she hates it. Da, 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 da. I forget if she yeah, she hates it or whatever. Hates the um hates the fact of banning it or whatever, right? That she pledged to ban it initially or something she wants to use it. I don't know. I don't I don't I'm not into I don't care, right? I'm not I'm not that deep into it, right? I don't care about the LGBT community in that way to 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 restrict them. You know what I mean? Like you're living, you you're you're doing you. You you're living your life. Go be you. Go do that. I'm happy for you. Go go be happy. Right. Go live your life. Go be happy. Go get happy. Go get a bag. Whatever you want to do. Right. I I I just don't see why people are so hung up on other people trying to find their purpose in life and and live their truth you know what i mean like what how does how does someone being gay offend like offend you personally are they are they stopping you from getting pussy like what what's what's the what's the what's going on are they stopping you from getting some are they stopping you from getting the bag are they stopping you from what I'm not I'm not sure what the what the issue here is. All right, let me get my phone right quick. Right. I'm not sure sh- I'm not sure what the I d I don't know. You know what I mean? It's just I, I if people get so triggered about it, I'm just like 
I care about the things I care about, partly because they affect me, and you know, that is what it is, maybe if I got like a rare disease, then I'd care about the disease, wouldn't I, because I fucking have it, you know what I mean, that's, and that's how it goes sometimes, right, um, not everything's breast cancer, not everything's testicular cancer, uh, maybe it might be just some rare shit that nobody else has, but you have it, and you care about it because of that, I'm not gay, I'm not trans, I'm none of that, <laughs> in some ways I don't care, but I do care that people are so hell-bent on restricting somebody's life in that way, you know what I mean, just doesn't, so that's when, that's when I think about shit being lazy, like, polit- politics is lazy as shit, you see it, um, same with, um, same with how, in America right now, right, they were talking weeks and weeks and weeks about trans people, trans, 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 and now as soon as Trump gets raided, it's about the, it's about the FBI, not, not even, no time for trans None, none. They just move on. It's like they 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 get a microchip removed in their head that says trans people that triggers them, right? Trans people, ugh, right? Get that chip taken out, and then immediately, excuse me, boom, FBI, and now they're st- and then they're triggered again. Now they're triggered about the FBI. That's all it is. Anyway, I hate that shit. Our reason is sexy lazy. We hold our own opinions to the standards of peoples. Uh, when someone doesn't buy the case you're making, it's worth remembering that you might not either if you weren't the one sending it. Stay critical even when you're emotional. This is this is key. Like, because didn't I not just get emotional? Probably. I don't know. I I, I consider that measured, but you consider that you can consider that emotional. The more charged the issue, the harder it is to stay in control of your critical thinking skills. When the U.S. Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade, many liberals were understandably outraged as they slipped into prosecutor mode. Though I watched their reasoning falter. Many argued that it was wrong to walk away from precedent, forgetting that they stood against precedent precedent when it came to overturning the 1972 ruling outlawed gay marriage. Uh, many conservatives fell into the same trap. They insisted there was no constitutional right to body autonomy, overlooking that they had insisted regulations to inject a vaccine into their body was a violation of their constitutional freedom. We choose the most convenient arguments to preach our convictions but demand bulletproof facts before we will, will rethink them. It's not just due to confirmation bias, the tendency to seize ideas to validate our views while dismissing information that challenges them. It's also because of distance. We're often too close to our own arguments to evaluate, evaluate them critically. To recognise our blind spots, we need other people to hold up a mirror. Friction isn't inherently bad. It could be productive. If people, two people always agree, at least one of them is failing to think critically or speak candidly. A difference of opinion doesn't have to threaten a relationship. It can be an opportunity to learn. The people who teach you the most are the ones who question your thought process, not the ones who validate your conclusions. Great point. Embrace the shades of grey. My friend who was opposed to vaccines works in healthcare. (laughs) Oh, come on, bro. Come on. Come on. Seriously, come on. Uh, uh, that 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 shit. I can't get past that kind of shit. Like it's just. Uh. But you know, it's the same when you know there's, there's lawyers for Trump. It's just like, why are you a lawyer for Trump? Imagine going to law school and you're a lawyer for Trump. Like, okay, it's just it's the same vibe. I know, but it's just so it's annoying when it's healthcare. Like people, you're playing with people's lives in some way, right? And it's just like, oh, health. I'm in healthcare, but you know, I, I don't do this. Like, good for you, fucking. Anyway. I asked him if he could help me identify flaws in my reasoning about the benefits of them. He quickly pointed out that when I said vaccines are safe and effective, I was parroting a narrative. How safe, how effective. He was right. I had fallen victim to what psychologists called binary binary bias. Uh, It's when we take a complex spectrum and oversimplify it into into two categories. 
If we want to have better arguments, we need to look for the shades of grey. Fair enough. In a difficult conversation there at Columbia University in New York, psychologists asked people on opposite ideas of the abortion debate to have a 20-minute discussion about the issue. They considered writing a, and signing a joint statement about their shared views. Before the discussion, they read one of two versions of an article on a different issue. Guns. A simple edit to the article was enough to boost their odds of finding common ground on abortion from 46% to 100%. In the first version, the gun issue was presented as a war between two camps. In the second, it was framed as a complex issue that could be seen through many different sides of a prism. There were many, there were plenty of conservatives who favoured universal gun uh, background checks for gun ownership, and quite a few liberals who supported the right to bear arms. Once people saw the shades of grey on guns, they came to the abortion conversation with a more open mind. I needed, I needed to bring that comp- complexity into my arguments. I asked my friend how he would weigh the benefits against the cost of vaccines. To my surprise, we agreed on the standards. We ha- we'd have to weigh the probability and severity of COVID-19 against probability and severity of adverse effects from vaccines. When I sent him some uh, initial evidence showing that the benefits outweighed ri- the risks, he said my view was biased. Instead of making one-sided arguments, I should be questioning the status quo. I told him the goal isn't to change the narrative, it's to find the truth. Agree on your approach to arguing. In conflict mediation training, so they said meditation, I learned that if you want to have a good argument, it helps to take a step back and talk about how you argue. I told my friend that before uh, debating the facts, we should discuss how to assess them. Excuse me, a balanced argument doesn't weigh two sides equally. He gives more weight to the strongest evidence. He was trying to use a chart implying a weak correlation between vaccination rates and mortality to debunk the results of multiple randomized controlled trials. He said the results of these trials could be exaggerated by scientists with incentives to promote vaccines, and that adverse events might be suppressed by Big Pharma and the government. My friend had helped me help me to see the selective laziness of my reasoning. Now I had an opportunity to help him spot a hole in his. I asked if he believed the Earth is round. He said yes. Asked him to consider what it would look like if he, uh, if he evaluated evidence on the shape of the earth the same way he does vaccines. He might say physicists are biased and astronauts are paid to lie. He might insist on seeing it with his own eyes. I followed up with another question. Even if he could see a round earth from space, who's to say it isn't an optical illusion? The earth is spinning, but your eyes and, and in ears tell you it's standing still. I acknowledge that he has some valid concerns about vaccines. And I share, and that I share some of them. By worry on, uh, by worry that on this issue, he's more in the flat earther camp than the science camp. For the first time in our thirty-year friendship, he said, "I see what you're saying." People who are skeptical of scientific ev- evidence on one issue rarely deny it across the board. Climate change deniers put their faith in physics each time they board a plane. Vaccine skeptics show their trust in medicine whenever they take an antibiotic. Uh, great point. Build up to the really toxic topics. The stronger your convictions, the harder it is to recognise your biases. Finding an issue where views are less extreme can create some distance. I didn't have to attack my friend's conclusions, I just had to help him reflect on his own thought process. A few months later, he proposed that we should switch sides on the debate. He sent me a study suggesting that, compared with people who were vaccinated boosted, unvaccinated people had a risk more than 13 times greater of being infected with COVID, and more than 53 times greater from dying from it. The highest compliment uh, from someone who disagrees with you is not you were right, it's you made me think. Good arguments help us recognise complexity where we once saw simplicity. The ultimate purpose of debate is not to produce consensus, it's to promote critical thinking. As children, many of us were taught that it isn't polite to disagree. As adults, we often shy away from minor disagreements with our partners. The risk is that we never prepare for the major ones. 
Arguing well is like learning to balance on a tightrope. You wouldn't get up one morning and walk across the Grand Canyon. You start off on a low rope and work your way up to the safe with a safety net. If you only argue when the stakes are high, your emotions are running too hot and uh, to think and learn. Practicing small fights is how you train for the big ones. Before clashing on racism or trans rights, try duking it on tax policy. <laughs> okay. Uh, keep agreeing to disagree. I don't know about this one. Uh, my, my friend and I... I, I, don't, I don't mind burning bridges sometimes. You know what I mean? It's, 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 anyway. Uh, my friend... or Not even burning bridges, but just like... Yeah. I don't care. Just, I, I've stopped... I'm past caring. Like, fine. You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, saying that, that's agree to disagree. So... I might as well delete all that. Uh, my friend and I, I went into our second year of the vaccine debate. Second year. I, I, I wouldn't even go this long. You know what I mean? Just like, live your life, bro. We still, If you die, you die. Uh, we still don't see eye to eye on many things. When I sent him a study estimating that COVID-19 vaccines save 40 million lives, 21 to 21 alone, he said the official reports for COVID-19 deaths were based on flawed data. We don't know how many deaths were really caused by the pandemic. I told him he was right. The researchers dealt with that problem by tracking total excess all-cause mortality. Uh, more, yeah, mortality, the difference between actual death rates in 885 countries and the expected number of deaths if there had not been a pandemic. The reported deaths were an underestimate. It appears the vaccine saved 19.8 million lives. He's still digesting the results and waiting for the longer term data. In the meantime, we've taught each other uh, quite a bit. He's educated me on about the number of people needed to treat in order for one person to benefit from a COVID vaccine. And I've sharpened his understanding to, uh, of study design and statistics. Great minds don't think alike. They challenge each other to think again. The clearest sign of intellectual chemistry isn't agreeing with someone, it's enjoying your disagreements with them. Harmony is a pleasing arrangement of different sounds, not the same ones. Creative tension can make beautiful music. So here's here's the only thing I'll say about all this. Um, and I'll finish here. I'm fine with pretty much all of that, right? In terms of arguing and how to argue and um, you know, agreeing to disagree and you know, just and not burning bridges, right? Um I get it. I'm here for it. Um, but I can't simply watch politics in any fashion and watch them be buddy buddy, right honourable friend, all that bullshit, right? I get why they do it. It's to hold up a precedent. But I I can't I can't connect their stakes there. You know what I mean? Like decisions made in politics have stakes you just arguing with your mate in an email chain does not affect people's lives it affects you too but it doesn't affect people's lives so when people are arguing in politics and common house of commons and all that about the dumbest shit i get pissed because you lot are playing with lives basically you're playing with the health of the country in so many ways that's the only reason why i hate people where hate people politicking and debating and obviously you know he he labeled three types of arguing um or three yeah well yeah three types of arguing in that sense the politicking and the other one prosecuting and uh forget the one the other one but yeah i get it but i just hate it people shouldn't argue like that and and they and they and they don't change their mind they they're not individual either they're they're part of a party and they kind of just go with whatever the overall party thinks and the overall party is a bunch of fucking nut jobs why and that's why i kind of wonder why there's not more why isn't there more independence in in the mp system because i just don't really get being part of a party at this point because it's just while it might help you i guess in some way 
um, that you you know you you're part of this thing that people support like a fucking sports team, which is wrong, um, in my mind. But it just <laughs> when people argue in that way, and nothing changes, and they go ahead and do the dumb shit that they're pu- and that, that they're spewing, then what's the point? What's the point of tuning in? What's the point of watching PMQs? What's the point of doing anything? What's the point of, of 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 announcing it? Just do it. To go ahead and do it. What's the point of putting it in the public marketplace for people to conversate about it? What's the point? Because clearly you don't care. Clearly you don't give a shit. Uh, clearly you'll just um, take whatever the Conservative Party or the Labour Party or whatever party gives to you. And, I, and it, it harps back to the neoliberal thing where, you know, neoliberalism kind of killed the community in some ways and made it individualistic. And I was kind of thinking about that the other night. I was just like, am I too individualistic? Has neoliberalism affected me in that way? Or I just feel individualistic and I just feel I need to do most of my shit solo? Maybe, maybe, maybe. That may be the case. Um, and I, and I, I, get the underst- I get the power of collective, you know, of, of the collective. I get it. Um, but I just don't see in politics uh, where there's so much so much at stake that um, I mean I guess the answer is um, so shit ain't in a deadlock. But I don't know, man. Is a bad decision worse than no decision? I'll leave you on that, ladies and gentlemen. From the Fifth End Podcast Network, I've been Charlie Tain. This has been what's good. Intro music has been too much by Vanilla. Thanks to Jort Music for the bit to use. You can find both their links in the full show notes. Thanks to Fred of Five Nappy High for the bit to use. Charismatic for the interlude. You can always find his link in the full show notes. And with that said, hope you all have a good week. I should always try and do the same. But until the next time, take it easy, ladies and gentlemen.